want to thank uh, Tina and Carly and Tim. Uh, thank you for your investment in putting together such wonderful, glorious, Christ-centered worship music for us this morning. Greatly appreciated. You sounded fantastic and really brings a atmosphere with that. Very grateful. Uh, just another reminder about tonight, 7 o'clock at our house, those of you who want to come, um, we're going to do some Christmas caroling around the neighborhood. It's, it's been great the last couple of years. Uh, Ivan, we're not going to be doing jingle bells, so you're safe to come. Um, but anyways, it's a good time. It's a good time for the church to get together and fellowship and and uh, be able to bless our community. And, and uh, It really is. You, see, you really see some amazing stuff happen. You know, people just don't expect anybody to knock on their door anymore and sing songs to them out on the street. So it is quite, you know, it's, it's neat to see. Last year, it was quite a shock to people. You can only imagine uh, this year. And I hope we're a blessing, not just a shock to people. Um, I hope that we come across in a way that um, really shares Christ to our community in a way that's godly and refreshing. Uh, so that, that's my uh, desire for this night. So come and join us. We'll have some refreshments there as well and uh, some good fellowship between us as well. I look forward to seeing you come out. So turn your Bibles, if you would, uh, to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. We'll be reading... Uh, out of chapter 2, uh, 25 to 35, and then um, as we uh, continue through the message, we will um, then begin to unpack this, what we call the greatest moment in history, uh, the Christmas story. So, But I did want to focus on one individual um, today as we... Uh, focus on this message today, and his name is Simeon, and I'd like to deal with uh, him as he plays a very important part uh, in the coming of our Savior into this world. So let us read verse 25, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy, thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Let us go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our, our time this morning. Lord, we thank you for saving us and filling us with your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that we can come together as the redeemed people of God and worship you this morning, Lord. Lord, our only desire this morning is to worship you. Lord, we're here because we love you and we want to glorify you. We want to lift you up, Lord, during this holiday season. Lord, we want to make you known. Lord, we know that you are our only hope. You're our only consolation, Lord. You're our only comfort. There is no other. So, Lord, have your way today. This service is about you. The preaching of your word is 
is about you, Lord. The singing of these beautiful Christmas hymns is all about you, Lord. And our coming together to fellowship today is all about you. Lord, let us experience your power today for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 2.25 reads, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. This event, the incarnation, uh, the birth of Christ, where God becomes a man in Jesus Christ, is by far one of the greatest, if not the greatest moment in human history. We may argue that the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of our Lord parallels this miraculous event. But truly, in all its glory, the incarnation of Christ is the greatest act of God in time, space, and history. Because if Christ was not the God-man, as being a child, being a baby, then he would not have been the perfect substitute. For our sin, who not only lived in our place being perfect, but also suffered and died in our place, taking upon himself the due punishment that our sins deserved. Paul said in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, what he's saying is this gospel that we hold so dearly isn't true then our lives are in vain. Everything that we do is in vain. All of our worship, all of our singing, all of the preaching is all in vain if this reality of God becoming man is not true. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoptions of sons. In the very first two chapters of Luke, the central theme is based around the incarnation and birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Luke 131, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. It was said in the 26th verse, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a, and this is extremely important, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name, the Bible says, was Mary. And then Mary said, if we have any idea who this young lady was, uh, I think it's important uh, if we could just take a quick pause and really just consider real quickly who Mary was. Okay, so Mary obviously was just a person like you and I. She wasn't special. She wasn't immaculate, as you hear from the uh, Roman Catholic Church that believes that she was immaculate, that she was sinless, and actually she remained sinless up to her death, which isn't true. Uh, isn't true because Mary, from her own mouth, says this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Just remember, Mary is declaring here, that this God-man that she's about ready to give birth to is also her Savior. And why would Mary say anything about a Savior if she's immaculate and didn't need a Savior? Mary was sinful just like you and I. At one point, totally dead, totally depraved, radically depraved, radically lost in her sin. And God, too, by His sovereign grace, had resurrected her spiritually and given her a new life. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the Bible says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin 
shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Very powerfully, Gabriel came to a young virgin and spoke to her that she shall be giving birth to our king and to our savior. She was untouched by any human. She was left completely undefiled. And God, by His power, the Scriptures say, overshadowed her. But it's even interesting, even Mary herself was was baffled by this greeting and this message. She says in Luke 1, uh, verse 34, she says, How can this be? Mary asked the angel, Since I am a virgin. The angel replied, Well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then we read in Matthew chapter 121, And she, Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, what a powerful declaration. What a powerful message. You can only imagine the impact upon Mary receiving this message from the angel of the Lord. I mean, it almost seems that it would be almost traumatic for a young lady to experience such a visitation such as this, such a powerful uh, visitation from an angel declaring that you, young lady, you are going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit of God and give birth to the Messiah of Israel, the birth of God. Grab onto this reality, if you would, this morning, and just, this isn't like a a fiction story. This is a true reality for us who are Christians. We know that the Bible is true, that Mary was a virgin, that what was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit, which she gave birth to our King, Lord, and Savior, Jesus Christ. He would be as Simeon cried out, he would be the consolation, the long-waited consolation of Israel, the long-waited promise, the long-waited Messiah. That is, if you were reading the Scriptures correctly and you understood the Word of God, this would be an extremely exciting time. As we look at the different characters uh, throughout this event, we see that Um, the Lord had raised up many individuals to play a key role in the introduction to our Messiah. And one of those individuals was John the Baptist. From the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we have Zacharias and Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who was called barren, gives birth to John the Baptist, who from the very womb was to be the Elijah of the Messiah. His ministry would usher in the first advent of Jesus Christ. In Luke 1.17 it says, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers towards children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to prepare a people fit for the Lord. In Luke 1, 15, it says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He'll also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Luke 1, 80, it says, So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts, not in the palaces, not in the pretty places, but in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. This 400 years of silence was ultimately shattered by his great battle cry. And the last 4,000 years of darkness, the last 4,000 years, you'd want to call it silence and darkness, was about to be 
blasted open with the entrance of our Redeemer and Lord. And that's pretty intense thought. Think about that for a moment. Just think about... Um, it's what they call, you know, that, that there was a there was a time uh, of what they would call the, the years of silence and the years of darkness where there was no prophetic word of God and, and people um, knew the scriptures and many very godly saints waited patiently for Christ the Messiah to come. And, and it's interesting how God had, had worked things out in such a way that he was going to make this this extremely powerful entrance of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. Let's continue to read. In Matthew 4, 6, it gives you some idea of what was going on during this time as well. If you're tracking along, you can turn to Matthew 4, 16. And the Bible says that the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death upon them, a light has dawned. See, the people weren't just sitting in spiritual darkness, which they were. But they're also sitting in national darkness as well. This whole period of time in history was a very dark, dark period in history. But also, at one point, the great light had dawned. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8, we could just ask the shepherds at that time, in whom the Bible says were just minding their own business in the fields, keeping watch over their sheep, when the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them to such an extent that they were held in terror. Think about this, where he says, you know, the people that were sitting in darkness, a great light, and all of a sudden, here's the shepherds just out in their fields, tending the sheep, minding their own business, and boom, a light has shone from heaven. It's shone around them in such a powerful way. It wasn't just like, wow, look at that, you know, UFO in the sky. It was such a powerful experience that they were held in fear and in terror. That's how great it was. But the angel said to them, and I imagine he said it quite quickly, because this wasn't a message to be feared. This was a message to be excited about. He said, but the angel of the Lord said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you not dark tidings. I don't bring you tidings of fear and tidings of dread and tidings of condemnation. He said, I bring you glad tidings of what? Great joy. I bring you glad tidings. I can only imagine what it would have been like to be standing there and beholding that and seeing that and hearing them say that. He says, I'll bring you glad tidings and great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day, this day, he says, in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly it says that there uh, was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This whole idea of glory to God in the highest. It is the highest pitch of worship known to man. It is really the apex and the ultimate experience of the believer. It's the highest form of worship that we can go. The greatest level of worship that we can give to God because there is no one higher than God. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the creator of all things. He has ordained all things. And in Him, in His Son, all things are held together. The time had now come. The promise was here. And everything and everyone up to this point was on the verge of a great awakening. 
It's interesting because you know you read about this 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 time and what was going on, and you see that in these times in the days of Herod, as it spoke, it was very a very dark, gloomy hour in history. But yet there was another king who comes into the picture with another message that was literally about to change the world forever. We look at the response to the shepherds to the message in the field. It says, Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which is told to them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, and it was told them. Which leads us now, these incidents, if you would, as we're tracking along here, are leading up to our text this morning in Luke 2.25, where it says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting, waiting for the comfort of Israel, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that the Holy Ghost was upon him. No one waits patiently that long in those kind of circumstances, in that situation, in that kind of culture, unless the Spirit of God is upon them. And we are living in the Spirit of God. A true believer, a true believer, one is truly possessed by the Holy Spirit, will be able to persevere in the darkest hours of history for the glory of God. You see, in these dark hours, as we're waiting patiently even for our return of our Savior to come back for His church, we too are expected to follow, if you will, the same prescription, the same recipe basically of how the saints should behave when hours of darkness suddenly come upon our lives. That we have the glad tidings of the gospel. We should be ones with great joy. That doesn't mean you have to walk around and be Mr. Positive all the time. But there should be a persevering grace to your life that enables the saints to continue through darkness, through trials, through affliction, through gross sin, through the attacks from without upon the church, upon our freedoms, on our liberties that have been given to us in Christ. We should be able to persevere and continually have a joy that shows the world that we're not of the world, but we're of another world. And that world is the world of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. See, the Bible introduces Simeon with a behold. There was a man whose name was Simeon. Simeon who comes to us almost like a ghost, literally walking off the pages of the Old Testament into the redeeming light of the New Testament. In Genesis 29.33, the name Simeon is actually directly linked to the verge verb Shema, which means actually to hear. And we know that the word Shema, you know, it comes um, out of uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And, and his name actually means to hear. Simeon's name means to hear. And I believe this is where this comes from. This verse is sometimes alternately uh, translated as the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Simeon was a just, as the Bible says, and devout Jew. He would have known the Shema. He would have known the meaning of what it truly means to hear. Because the Bible says he came by what? The Spirit to the temple. He didn't come by some manifestation of the flesh to try to perform some deed to make himself right with God. He came because he was literally led by the very Spirit of God. You think of the times that 
you know, Simeon lived in, and, and it, it, these were this was a a time where, um, you know, a a a Jew like Simeon, who his you know as he was getting older, he was coming to the very end of his life, and his his past life was was you know he would he would be in the temple, he would be um, operating in, in this fashion to the glory of God. He would have spent some time there. But also you have to understand the times in which Simeon was living. You have to understand his culture and his world around him to really appreciate what God does in the life of a regenerated soul. What God was leading him leading him through the old world into the new world. It says in Matthew 2.1, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king. Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and then Luke 1 5 says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah. It really highlights this idea of wanting the reader to understand what it was like in the days of Herod and how important it was that another king came on the scene. And it was like almost like Christ is communicating to his people that I come in the most darkest hour. I come in the most darkest hour. Not when there's peace upon the earth. Not when there's good times and happy times. Everybody's prospering. Everybody's doing well. What he's saying here is that I've come. I've invaded at a time of the most darkest, gloomiest hour in history. This is God's choice. His sovereign way of coming into the world to confront the darkness. J.C. Ryle said in the days of Herod, the kingdoms of the world were full of of dark idolatry. He said it was a time, uh, procure, uh, it was a time, he says, suitable for the introduction of Christ's gospel. Matthew Henry said, God, when he pleases, can make the worst of places serve the best of his purposes. Let that sink in this morning as we as we consider Simeon's life. I mean, it's easy just to look at some devout Jew who has been waiting his whole life to see baby Jesus. And we can miss everything that's going on behind the scenes and the present message that's trying to be communicated to us through the scene as well. We have to understand um, where he was and, and, and what, what position he occupied and how he lived his life out to the glory of God. Matthew Henry goes on to say, if we and our infants are at any time in trouble, let us remember the straits in which Christ went as an infant. Herod killed all the male children, not only in Bethlehem, but in all the villages of that city. Unbridled wrath, armed with an awful power, often carries men to absurd cruelties. Absurd cruelties. The baby killing, the massacring of little babies has always been throughout history. In the time of Pharaoh, uh, we see it in the times of Herod, and, I, and it's just amazing how little children always seem to be the target of attack. Any time in history, you can always see that when the enemy's on the move, his main focus is the destruction of babies or the destruction of the innocents. And I don't mean that we're innocent from our birth. You get what I'm saying. That there is a plan because I'll tell you what, children are so important because in them is our future. And they are so impressionable. What was it? Hitler said, if you could just give me your children uh, to the age of seven, then I've conquered them over to my ways. There was a really a, you know, there, there is a sophisticated plan that the enemy has to destroy babies. Look at all the millions of, of, of children who are murdered in the womb up until this day. What is like 70 million children have been murdered in the womb. They, they are, it's clear, this is beyond just killing children. There's something behind this. It's almost like, it's almost like a, a fiendish worship. It's almost like this, 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 Something that's so disgustingly gross and vile that it has spiritual implications to people's behavior. And I always noticed when we went out to the abortion mills, there's always a much different atmosphere than it was when we just went out to the streets and preached. 
because there was bloodshedding. There was an altar service going on inside of these buildings. And it was so vile and disgusting and demonic that you could almost feel it in the atmosphere. It brought about it a much more um, intense form of ministry. And this is not to say that, brothers and sisters, that those women who have experienced an abortion, there is not, you know, not saying there's not forgiveness and healing for them. There is. But the point is, is that it seems like every major move of history before Christ returns or the move of God happens, there's always a destruction of little children. He goes on to say, but the murder of these infants was their martyrdom. How early did persecution against Christ and his kingdom begin? Herod now thought that he had baffled the Old Testament prophecies and the efforts of the wise men in finding Christ. But whatever crafty, cruel devices are in men's hearts, the counsel of the Lord shall stand. J.C. Ryle goes on to say, we see that in the case of Simeon, how God has a believing people, even in the worst of places, in the darkest times. Religion was at a very low ebb in Israel when Christ was born. The faith of Abraham was spoiled by the doctrines of Pharisees and Sadducees. The fine gold had become deplorably dim. Yet even, even then we find in the midst of Jerusalem a man, just and devout, a man upon whom is the Holy Spirit. It is a cheerful thought that God never leaves himself entirely without a witness. Small as his believing church may sometimes be, the gates of hell shall never completely prevail against it. Be encouraged today. That it just it, it, it may seem at times the church is so small and minuscule and, and, and small in number. But it's God's way of destroying and annihilating the darkness. And nothing, nothing can overcome it. Even, even at our very deaths, at the hands of our enemies, does not stop the gospel. We preach an unstoppable gospel. The gospel will never be stopped. They can take your head off in prison. They can wipe you out. They can destroy you. But let me just say one thing. The gospel will never be thwarted. During these dark pages of history, we find Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel. And who can blame him, right? He's waiting patiently for the comfort of Israel. He's waiting for the Messiah. And the darker things get, and the worse that things come upon us, the more that excitement increases. The more we're put through affliction and the fire and these damages, it makes us ache and yearn for the Lord Jesus Christ. Dealing with the consolation and the comfort of Israel, Webster's Dictionary of 1828 defines the word consolation as comfort, alleviation of misery, or distress of mind, refreshment of mind or spirits, a comparative degree of happiness in distress or misfortune, springing from circumstances that abates evil, or supports and strengthens the mind as hope, joy, courage, and the like. I prayed that today, um, in my time of prayer, I prayed that you know the saints of Christ would, would, would come out of this idea of always being scolded. And whether it's by other Christians or their own self, constantly scold. You may be one of these people that constantly scold yourself 24-7. One of these people that speak to themselves negative thoughts all day long. Constant, almost enslaving yourself and dehabilitating yourself from really being all that Christ has ordained you to be. And it's extremely important that, that, that you understand that the Lord is your consolation. The Lord is your comfort. You don't have to worry. You don't have to um, condemn yourself constantly and scorn and scold yourself 24-7. You can come out of that and understand this. And understand this one thing is that God is, and I don't want to beat on this subject because some people think it's just a facade to escape responsibility, but God truly is sovereign over our lives. And he truly cares for his people beyond anything that we could ever define. And beyond anything we could ever explain or articulate perfectly, that God cares for his people. 
And whatever situation and whatever problem uh, that you're struggling with today, it may be stress, it may be anxiety, it may be depression, it may be loneliness, uh, it may be some besetting sin that you're just so sick and tired of continually falling into. Look to Christ as your consolation. Rest in the completed, finished work of your Savior and know that He is risen. He's still alive. He's alive. He's not dead. And He is willing and ready to be with you in all of your trying times. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us, hear me now, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Uh, Carly kind of reminds me of the, you know, the, the conference that I went to, the gentleman that was up there speaking, really dealing with this verse. Because it's so powerful, you know, like it, it's it's like sometimes we wonder why we go through such afflictions. Right? You ever wonder? I mean, if you're just honest with yourself, because sin can be so deceptive. Our flesh can be so deceptive. Sometimes that we think we're going through these problems. I mean, yeah, I mean, let's just face it. Sometimes those problems come upon us because of our own neglect, because of our own sin. But there's times when things come upon us in such a way that are ordained by the very hand of God to, for our own good and for His glory to benefit us, to transform us, to change us and shape us. Why? Not only for just His glory, but so that we can be there to comfort others who go through similar afflictions. It prepares our heart. It makes us right uh, and ready to be able to witness to others who have been harmed in maybe a way that we feel like we've been harmed. It gives us this counseling ability to reach into someone else's life and say, hey, I've been there. I've walked in your shoes. I get it. I've been afflicted. And this is what what, what he's saying here in these verses, that we would be able to comfort others, which we ourselves are comforted by God. Are you guys, do you guys feel that comfort of the Lord? Do you you sense God's power in your life? I'm not talking about this heroic power that you've got to fly around with the cape on. I'm talking about, do you feel God's presence there for you in those moments of affliction? Or do you find yourself defaulting into the things of the world and behaving like the world and acting like the world to somehow try to fish out some remedy that just doesn't work, that makes your matters worse? The reality, there is a true, ever-present God in our time of trouble. He's, he is there. And if you call upon His name, if you learn by default not just to run to our phones every five minutes when we have a problem, to look at some way to abate our our flesh and our desires and our affections, but we would turn to Him honestly with all of our affections placed upon Him and trust Him, He would bring a comfort to your soul like nothing else can. Simeon, he was was looking for Christ. He was looking for Christ. He had spent so much time in the temple. He knew the ways, uh, you know, the the ways of the Jews. He knew the law of God and and, and all of these things by the Spirit of God. He understood what they meant. Even prophetically, he knew when the baby was coming. He knew when that baby's arrival was. He knew. And his one aching desire was to see the Messiah before he died. One of his all-encompassing desires was to hold Christ and to bless him. To see him with his own eyes. Because at that point, after that, let's just face it. What could top that in life, right? I'm ready to go. You hear people all the time says, if I could just see this person, uh, if I could see this person face to face, or I could just go to this concert, if I could just meet this person, then I would be okay to die after that. We're talking about God himself, seeing God face to face, holding the Son of God in his very arms, blessing the Son of God, seeing him, beholding him, and the impact that they had on his life, that he was at such an extent that he was ready to give up his life. Some characteristics of Simeon that we read through chapter 2 through 25 through 35 says he was a just and he was a devout man. 
He was a patient man waiting on the consolation of Israel. The Bible says the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit revealed to him when and where the Savior would be revealed. That he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He was led by the Spirit. He came by the Spirit into the temple. Verse 27. He held and blessed the baby Jesus. He took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And he was ready to die. He was ready to die well. He was ready to go. In these short verses that declare his testimony show that he was on the verge of departing this life. He was an old man and by God's grace he endured through, the, through a nation under the judgment of God to the finality of his life holding and beholding the face of his Savior. Holding and beholding the face of his Savior. Spurgeon says, No spectacle is more sublime than an old man of piety and high character looking for the appearing of the Lord and patiently waiting for the time to come when he may be blessed with the sight of his Redeemer. Christ comes when he is most needed. Christ comes when he is most needed. Dark times to Spurgeon, he says, true Christians in every age should remember this and take comfort. It is a truth which they are apt to forget and in consequence to give way to despondency. I alone am left, said Elijah, and they seek my life to take it away. But what said the answer of God to him? He says, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. Let us learn to be more hopeful. Let us believe that grace can live and flourish even, the, even in the most unfavorable circumstances. There are more Simeons in the world than we suppose. I think one of the biggest things, I think you guys could all agree with this, brothers and sisters, is that this feeling of, I'm alone in all of this. And, you know, sometimes it's easy to feel that way because the world wants us to feel alone. That's how they win, is that they, 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 um, they communicate to us that we've got no one and we're all alone and we've got to face these challenges by ourselves. They love to isolate, to annihilate. And this is why it's so extremely important that we don't fall into these, these beliefs that there are no other Simeons out there. There's no just and devout men living and women living uh, anymore. It just seems like everybody's bailing, everybody's jumping ship, everybody's compromising, everybody's accommodating the world, the church is accommodating the world, we're allowing all these things in. Does anybody care? Does anybody care anymore about the things of God? And that is really the pain of someone that feels like they're all alone in this battle. It was the pain of Elijah. He cried out. I'm the only one left. And obviously it wasn't true. But I'll tell you something. When you're in the battle, it can sometimes feel like that. When you're right in the heart of extremes, it can feel like you're the only one. And Elijah wasn't afraid to acknowledge this, but God definitely came back on him and said, listen, there are many more that have not bowed their knee to Baal. And I would tell you this morning, uh, brothers and sisters, though things look, uh, you know, look bad out there, but a lot of it's just coming from what we see on TV. This is why we need to turn our frequencies and the antennae to the Scripture, to the Word of God. Sometimes it's better just to shut the stinking television off. Turn anything off. Shut YouTube down if you're constantly getting fed stuff that is causing you to fear and feel all alone and to worry. The Lord says the old, the old Simeon, now let your servant depart in peace. He's, <clears throat> he speaks like one for whom the grave has lost its terrors and the world its charms. He desires to be released from the miseries of this pilgrim state of existence and to be allowed to go home. He is willing to be absent from the body, as the Bible says, and present with the Lord. He speaks as one who knows where he is going when he departs this life and cares not how soon he goes. The change with him will be a change for the better and he desires that his change 
may come soon. Questions that we just have to ask ourselves here in this situation. What is it that can en enable a mortal man to use such language as this? What enables him uh, to, to talk like this? To talk like this? I mean, it's not normal uh, to our world here in America. It's not normal uh, for someone to look at the grave as powerless and be ready to go to the grave. You know, in reality, one of the most, if I could use the word, medicating things to your soul is not to fear death, to look, look forward to it. I'm not being grim, I'm not being morbid, but what I'm saying is, is that within the believer's life, there is an anxious anticipation to go home and be with our Lord forever, to rid ourselves of this vile, rotten, wicked, perverted, adulterous world, to be relieved from that once and for all. And I believe this is where Simeon is. He's, he had patience through all the darkness, all the bloodshed, all the gross sin, all the gloom. He made it. He was patient. And there he finds himself face to face with, the, with his Savior who has saved him. Okay, And now he's ready to depart from this world. What can deliver us from that fear of death to which so many are in bondage? Do you fear death this morning, brothers and sisters? Do you have a nagging fear of dying? Are you afraid to pass from this world into the next? Are you ready? Is your heart ready? Have you been made right with God? Have you been reconciled with the God-man? Christ came into the world to save his people. He didn't come in just for another good piece of literature for us to read and get excited about and to line him up with all of our other gods. God sent His Son into the world to save sinners like you and me. It's God and man. God was, was in man reconciling the world to Himself. And this is a powerful revelation. And I pray by the Spirit of God this morning that you would understand this and that you would get this. This is the most important message beyond anything that I've spoken to you today that you are ready for eternity. You are ready to pass from this life into the next. Let's not play with our salvation. Let's not play with eternity. Let's just not say, well, I'll wait till tomorrow. I'll wait till this day. You, in your pride, you may not have the next breath. You may not be living the next breath. You may not walk out of here and fall to the ground dead because God owns you. Psalms 24 says that God owns this world and all the inhabitants of it. He owns you. He owns every breath that comes out of your lungs. You realize that. That God is in full and absolute control over your being and your life. And we have no right to say that we will do this and that whenever we want. The Bible says that all men everywhere need to repent because God has appointed a day when you would judge the world in righteousness. There's going to come a day when you stand before God. Once you give up your last breath, it's over. It's over. You may not have a long 80-year life. And then get to the end of your life and say, okay, now I'll say the sinner's prayer and go to heaven. It doesn't work like that. The reality is, is that God could take you home at any moment, at any second. And that home may not be in the total abyss of Christ in heaven. It may be in a place which the Bible calls hell. Where God's wrath is poured out upon his enemies for all eternity's infinite wrath. And this is true. This is, this is what I'm telling you is true. And I love you enough this morning to tell you what the Christmas message is. That Christ came into the world through a baby. Yes, he did. He came through a sinless birth. Mary was a virgin. She could see by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ was born under the law. He kept the whole law perfectly in our place. He didn't do it just because it was a great thing to do. He obeyed God because he was the perfect sacrifice of God. He was a sacrificial lamb of God. He's born under the law. He satisfied God's law covenantally perfectly. Perfectly, every jaw and every tittle. And he took upon himself the form of a man, not the form of a bear or a lion or a sheep or an animal. He took upon himself the form of a human being, of a man. He died for man. He was 100% man and he was 100% God. And he hung upon the altar, upon that cross between heaven and earth and made reconciliation for his people. And he rose from the dead three days later, later, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And the only way you're going to defeat death, hell, and the grave is through faith in Christ.
There's no other way. You're not a good person. The Bible says that no one's good. The Bible says, as a matter of fact, we're completely opposite. We're totally depraved and radically depraved and haters of God and want nothing to do with God. And this is why it's so powerful when the gospel's preached and God opens your spiritual ears and opens your heart to receive this truth. And my prayer this morning is that you would hear this message. Not just some bozo preacher up here blabbing his mouth, but you would hear the word of God reach you today and you would come out of your darkness into the marvelous light of God's Son. Nothing but faith can take the sting of death away, brothers and sisters. Faith laying firm hold on the unseen Savior. Faith resting on the promises of an unseen God. Faith and faith only can enable a man to look death in the face and say, I depart in peace. Let us ever rest our souls on the thought that times are in God's hands. He knows the best season for sending help to his church and new light to the world. Let us beware of giving way to, to, to over to anxiety about the course of events that are going on around us as if we know better than the King of Kings what time relief should come. Well, I'm thankful for the story of Simeon because it really gives us a picture of what a life looks like who, who's been led by God, has been changed by God, who hasn't been changed by the world, but remained unchanged in the sense of his stability and his predictability to continue uh, to, to walk out his faith to the end and how God had blessed him and how we too, soon and very soon, brothers and sisters, will see the face of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for the precious, precious word of God. Thank you for each and every one that's here today, Lord. And I pray, Father, if your spirit is willing, Lord, that you would move amongst those who are seated here today, that not one would be lost. Lord, we ask that you move powerfully upon the conscience, Lord. And not only reveal the terrible, tragic life sentence, eternal life sentence of sin against you, but show us your son. Show us your son that we too can see him face to face. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.